0: Our text today is found in Matthew chapter 6. We'll look at verses 25 to the end of the chapter. Beginning at verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life or a single cubit to his height? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We're in the second half of Matthew 6, and it can be divided into four sections. We saw three of them last week, about storing up treasure on earth, that we were to store treasure in heaven, about being generous, about serving God, not mammon. And then what we're looking at today, and that is that we are not to be anxious about food or clothing, In each of these first three sections, Jesus presents us with two alternatives. Two treasures, either treasure on earth or treasure in heaven. Two bodily conditions, that is, light or darkness. Two masters, God or mammon. Two preoccupations, which we'll look at today, and that is our bodies or the kingdom of heaven. But also, we saw last week, there are two responses. Either we can love or hate. And as I mentioned last week, I think we might flinch or cringe or recoil at the notion of it's either love or hate. We would prefer this gray area of like, and maybe, if you want a negative, dislike. But when you have love and hate, it seems so black and white. Um, but Jesus tells us we have to choose. Either our focus will be here on earth or in heaven, Either we will serve God or we will serve mammon, and either we will love God or we will hate God. You can't like God, if you wish. It's either we love him or we hate him. In verse 19, and just to review a bit from last week, we see a warning against the wrong way. We are not to store up treasure here on earth because there are at least three enemies. Moth, that is nature, it just will eat it away. Rust, which is time and history, just wear it away, and then thieves, human beings, who will steal what you have either while you're alive or after you're gone. A sensible person realizes that things don't last, and therefore that can't be our focus. So in verse number 20, he tells us the right way, and the right way is not to get rid of desires. I mentioned last week, some people think if I don't care about anything, if I don't love anything, then I won't care if I lose it. And that's the way to go. And not at all. Jesus understands he made us. He made us with ambition and with desire. There is something that we put our lives into. But what we need to know is that there is something of ultimate value. There is something of temporal value, temporary value, and something of ultimate value. So Jesus doesn't get rid of desire. He elevates it. He tells us, if you wish to be ambitious, to be passionate, to be zealous, but within the proper framework. And so verse number 21, we saw last week, was the key to this section. The things that are important, our treasure, are the things, that's where our lives will be. Where our treasures, that's where our hearts will be. Our goals, our treasures, determine our actions. And the question is, whom do I seek to please? Again, this is the question. Will we serve God or will we serve someone else? And then we looked at verses 22 and 23. And this is one of the reasons for the review because 22 and 23 actually don't seem to fit into the passage. Um, And we, I think, take it in a different way than what Jesus intends it. He says, "The the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. And so, you know, we... The the eyes are the windows to the soul, so if you have good eyesight, if you don't have to wear glasses, but even if you wear glasses, that helps your eyesight, then you, in fact, will be able to see things very clearly. But this, in fact, is not what Jesus is talking about. He isn't speaking scientifically. He's not speaking poetically, if you wish. He is speaking in the language of the Old Testament. And if you look in the Old Testament, whenever it describes somebody... And their eyesight, or in terms of their eyes, it isn't talking about 20-20 eyesight. But it's rather talking oftentimes about their emotional or their spiritual state. So when people are grieving, they are said to have dimmed eyesight. Their eyes are dimmed. On the other hand, when people are full of joy, their eyes are enlightened. So it's not like suddenly you know they had LASIK surgery and now they can see clearly. No, it is in fact a description of the condition of the heart. But the language that is used is that of the eyes. Um, the psalmist says, Look on me and, and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. So in the Old Testament The eyes are not the window to the soul and light comes through the eyes. The eyes are the source of light itself. They are light and they are life. Um, The application is seen in what follows. We have three ifs. The first one is, if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. I think the people listening to Jesus would have said, that's right, We, we agree with that. Yeah, we buy that. The second if I think they were less happy with. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. The idea of the evil eye is something that is found in various cultures, even among the Jewish people today. It's something that's out there. Someone's putting an evil eye on you and you need to protect yourself, you know, ward off the evil eye. Um, In the Old Testament, that's not it at all. And during the time of Jesus, not at all. To have an evil eye is to be selfish, is to be stingy. And if you compare the King James Version, for example, with the NIV or more modern translations, you will find that the King James will have it literally, evil eye, if your eye is evil. And the NIV will say, if you are stingy. And now we come to see that it isn't a question of having good eyesight, or even understanding or seeing things clearly. You know, We might want to go that direction. Not at all. The question is, are you generous or are you stingy? And if you have an evil eye, then in fact, you are selfish. The NIV, let me give you an example, says, this is in Proverbs twenty-eight, twenty-two: A stingy man is eager to get rich and is unaware that poverty awaits him. But in the King James, which is more literal, he that hath an evil eye hasteth to be rich. I think Jesus' original listeners understood exactly what he was saying. They weren't scientific, modern people like we are. It wasn't about the quality of their eyesight. It was, were they generous? Were their eyes full of light? Or were were they selfish? Was it darkness? So the third if is, if then light. the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Boy, if your eyes, they provide your sense of life, they are your light, but they are in fact darkness, then you're really in serious trouble. Why are we selfish? Um, Those of you with children, but as you see children grow up, it's really quite amazing. You You don't need to teach them how to be selfish. They simply, it's part of who we are as human beings. We're sinners. But in this text, we are selfish because the treasure that we imagine is ours Becomes the focus of our life, and and we want to keep it. If in fact we're thinking about here on life, here on Earth, our life here, then we become very self-centered and very selfish. We are storing up treasures here on Earth, and we act as though they're going to last forever, and as if we are going to last forever, or at least for a very long time, much longer than I think is realistic. Jesus begins with something that the people understand, and then he springs a trap on him, on them. If your eyes have light, it's good, but if they are dark, if you have an evil eye, and then suddenly they are caught in the realization that they and we, like them, oftentimes are driven by selfishness. And then the last verse that we saw last week, this is all review, is that no one can serve two masters. Uh, The NIV has money, and I think that's unfortunate. Mammon is from Aramaic, and it speaks of anything that you put your confidence in. It may be money, and in today's society, I can see why the translators went with money, because that seems to be what people put their confidence in. But it doesn't just have to be money. And it is, by the way, mammon is as illogical as idolatry. If you make an idol and you worship it, It's like, what, you made it and now you're going to worship it? In the same way you make something your goal, your treasure, and you worship it, um, you put your confidence in it, it's really quite foolish. Today we come to the last part of chapter 6, and it begins with the word, therefore, which shows that Jesus is drawing a conclusion based on what he has said previously, and because in just the verses that came before it, we are told not to store up treasure on earth, but in heaven. We are told not to be selfish, but to be generous. And we are told not to serve men, but to serve God. Therefore, Jesus tells us, we are not to worry. I think it is possible, though, that at this point in the sermon, Jesus isn't just going back a few paragraphs, if you wish, but he's going back even further than that. Thus far, Jesus has told us that things do not have ultimate significance. Material, material possessions can be destroyed by moth, by rust, or they can be stolen. But what about the things you need? Forget treasures. Forget luxuries. What about the things that you need? What about food? What about drink? And what about clothing? It may be possible, and this is just my opinion, That in what we looked at last week and what we've just reviewed now Jesus may not be speaking directly to his listeners that in many ways he's making sort of an abstract theoretical argument because many of the people that he spoke to were not prosperous the word treasure to them was almost a fairy tale was something that they did not have he's speaking in Galilee The people are not economically prosperous. Many of them are day laborers. They get paid at the end of the day. And those who were farmers oftentimes were tenants on land that belonged to people who lived in Judea and Jerusalem. So these are people who work for other people who, who barely have enough to get by. They were constantly in debt, many of them. So in verse number 24, the mammon there, Something you put your confidence in is not something that they had, but perhaps something that they wanted. It is not something they had attained or obtained, but it was something that was unattained. It was something that one day they hoped to have, but at this point they did not. So people may say, if only I had, and then you fill in the blank, and either in thought or action, that's what they live for. They live As though, if only I had that, and they live that way, as though in fact they did have it, when in fact they don't. In what we're going to look at today, Jesus deals with them directly. He doesn't speak about treasure. He doesn't speak about leisure, if you wish. He talks about necessities. Your life, your body, the things that you will eat or drink, and what you will wear. Just as earthly possessions or treasures can be idols which force God out of the picture, um, so can necessities. We like to think that idols are things that are sort of on the side, that we don't they aren't necessary to our lives, they're just there and we sort of worship them. But the things that are necessary food can in fact become our idol. Rabbi Hillel, who lived before the time of Jesus, said the fewer possessions, or the more possessions, the more the care. But I think we could also argue the fewer possessions, the more the care. I think if you're rich or if you're poor or in between, anxiety is always nearby. Being anxious is always there. It is, I think, the natural human tendency to worry and to worry about possessions we might say it is a natural human tendency not to trust God. By the way, the fact that rich people are anxious should be proof to us that getting money or possessions is not the, rid- the way to get rid of anxiety. Someone who's written a two-volume commentary on Matthew that I found really, really helpful. His name was Frederick Dale Bruner. Um, He was a missionary in the Philippines for 12 years. I didn't know that when I first started using his work. But he was a missionary for 12 years, and he writes, As a missionary in the Philippines, I was convinced that this is a text that cannot be preached to the poor, what we're looking at today. It is cruel to tell the poor not to be anxious about getting enough to eat or wear. And I've often thought that this text should not be preached in the well-to-do West either it will only confirm the comfortable bourgeois prejudice. It is true, we who live in the West are affluent. We have more, I think, than we realize. We have medical technology, we have transportation, and so many things. It may be because of indebtedness that we may not think of ourselves of as affluent, but we are. So the question is, if this text is not appropriate for poor people, And if this text is not appropriate for affluent people, who is it for? Well, I think it in fact is appropriate for both those who are poor and those who are affluent. We may not worry about whether or not we're going to have enough to eat and drink or clothes to wear. I think our worries with regard to food oftentimes is not whether or not we will have food to eat, but what kind of food will we eat and where will we eat Will we prepare it ourselves or will we get it as takeout or will we have it delivered? And then you have all the various kinds. And let's take Thai food for an example. There are different Thai places and different recipes that they do. And so the decision for most of us is not, do we have enough to eat tonight? It's like, what are we going to eat? Where are we going to go? And is it going to be delivered to us? And with regard to clothes, I don't think we worry. We don't have one suit of clothing or two so it depends on the occasion and we want to match and make sure that things match when we wear them and if it's cold enough you know if it's cold that we have enough warm clothing on is our clothing clean and then if you have to wash it do I use cold water or warm water or hot water we we don't ask ourselves do we have things to wear it's i think It would be almost heartbreaking to people, a lot of people on this planet, when they would hear us say, I have nothing to wear. When in fact we've got a lot to wear, we just can't decide what it is we want to wear. If we are not careful, we here, Melrose here in 2016, may read this passage and think that it has little to say to us because we don't worry about such things we have food, we have something to drink, we have clothing. I can't help but be reminded of what will come later, the parable of the sower, when he speaks of those who hear the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, make it unfruitful. One writer put it this way, such people have been deceived either by the sheer number of their concerns or by the lure of wealth into locating their hopes and aspirations in the wrong places that is, in the temporal and passing, rather than in eternal and lasting. Our hope is in our food, in our drink, in our clothing. We don't worry about these things. We don't look to God for these things. We've got it covered. Thank you very much. Living at this point in history, where we do geographically, economically, socially, we face temptations, peculiar temptations, I think very different from Jesus' original listeners, Because of technology, because of the belief or the assumption that all human problems have human solutions, that's part of the myth of technology, Um, we believe that we can solve any problem. So, do we not have enough to eat? Let's grow more food. Do we not have enough clean water? Let's get a purification system going. Do we need clothing? Then let's make some more, produce more clothing. And there is, I think an unspoken belief that, in fact, we can engineer a solution to any problem. It gives us a false view of reality. This is exemplified, by the way, this is some years ago, in the whole Earth catalog, the first one. It wrote, now that we know we are gods, we might as well get good at it. This is a false view of what it means to be human. But so is the view that is produced by worry. So verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Such worries view humans as if they were only bodies needing to be fed and clothed and human life as though it's purely a mechanism that needs to be lubricated from time to time, and fueled. We need to ask ourselves, is physical well-being a worthy project? Is this the reason that we live our lives? Isn't there anything more to life than just keeping well, being fed, and being clothed? Soren Kierkegaard, who lived in the 19th century, Noted that secular society tempts us to focus a great deal of our time and energy on matters that are merely accidental to our true selves and to neglect what is, in fact, essential to ourselves and our characters. We spend our time on what we are going to eat, what we're going to wear, rather than who we are as those made in the image of God. When God created the world, there was a harmony between dominion, that is obeying God, and trusting God. It wasn't like, we've got this covered, we can do it, dominion. But we, Adam and Eve trusted God and they were also obedient to God. Well, that, that those days are long gone. We live in a fallen world. And now we either seek to dominate or we become overly dependent. And these things give us meaning and they give us a sense of security. I'm, I don't know if I should say I'm a believer, but there is such a thing as comfort food, isn't there? Something that just sort of brings a certain comfort. Uh, but can it in fact become a source of overdependence? It is this that Jesus calls us away from. Storing up treasure, being selfish, serving mammon, or worrying about life. One is domination, I am going to save as much as I can. And the other is worrying, am I going to have enough to eat? As the children of God, we are to trust God and we are to be obedient. How does Jesus call us away from worrying? If it's a natural condition, how do we break the cycle? How do we stop worrying? Well, Jesus, in fact, does call us away from this and he does so in several ways. First of all, he gives us a negative command. Three times in this passage, we read the words, do not worry. If you're taking notes, it's in verse 25, 31 and 34. Um, and you will notice that he commands us do not worry. The second thing he does is he appeals to creation. He speaks of birds and lilies and grass. And it, this isn't I think a mere analogy, but an affinity. We are part of creation as well. And he points Jesus points to the natural order of things. Look at creation. Jesus is not the first to do this. By the way, in the book of Job, Job, in answering one of his comforters, said, But ask the birds and they will teach you, or the, the animals and they will teach you, or the birds of the air and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish of the sea inform you. Theologically, referred, we refer to this as natural revelation. God has revealed himself in his creation, in the beauty of all that he has done. But there's a problem. We don't always read the message the way that it is intended. We we fail to recognize what God is telling us through the birds and earth and the sky and the animals and all the things that surround us in creation. So it has to be explained to us. And Jesus doesn't just say, "Look at the birds, look at the lilies," and then go on. He in fact has to explain it to us because we don't get it without the explanation. It's not a question of intelligence, it's a question of the the darkness of our own hearts and our understanding. He explains that the Heavenly Father feeds the birds and that the Heavenly Father clothes the lilies, the grass of the field. Now, this is something we find throughout scripture, the idea of grass and flowers as being very temporary. All men are like grass, we are told. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. It's from Isaiah 40. From Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But Jesus uses this example, if you wish, this analogy, in a different way. He doesn't speak of, you know, grass is really temporary. Flowers fade really quickly. It's not the point that he's trying to make. Yes, grass and flowers are fragile. They're so temporary, yet God lavishes his care on these things that are here today and gone tomorrow. It's really quite remarkable. See, it's one thing to say about flowers, well, you know what? Next week, this is, you know, this is going to be in the compost bin. You know, th- this isn't going to last. That is true. But Jesus says, imagine that which is going to be in the compost bin next week. God has lavished his care on this. That Solomon, in all his glory, did not look as beautiful and was not clothed the way that these flowers are, as temporary as they are. And if that's what God does for flowers, what do you think he's going to do for you? You who are made in his image. Thirdly, Jesus appeals to common sense. And this we know, but we don't know. We don't remember. And that is, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life or a single cubit to his height? Um, The context has to do with food and clothing. So do you imagine... um, and? uh, don't misunderstand me. We are to eat in a healthy manner. okay? But somehow we think, if I do this, I'm going to live almost forever. I remember someone saying years ago, reading a cookbook written by a Christian, interestingly enough, and she, she, spoke, she, you know, she commented to her husband, this author writes as though you're going to live forever. That if you eat healthily, if you do what you're supposed to do, you're never going to die. Well, no. We all know better than that. We know that if you worry, you in fact cannot add a moment to your life. But do we though? I mean, let's be honest. Don't you sometimes think, you know, if I don't worry about it, it, it'll happen. But if I worry, then it won't happen. So it's better to worry than to not worry. Um, Common sense says actually that that's not right. The fourth thing that Jesus does is he gives us a positive command and a promise. Verse 33 which I think is the key to this passage, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. We are called to be different in the Sermon on the Mount. Thus, this, this verse begins with the word but, to indicate a contrast with the pagans. The pagans run after all these things, but we, in fact, are to be quite different. What are we to do? We are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. This part of chapter 6 had the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So the kingdom coming is when we obey God. God is, is king. The vast majority of people do not acknowledge him as king. He's still king, whether people acknowledge that or not. But when we do, we are saying, your kingdom come. Some have defined the kingdom of God as God's here and now rule. He's the one who sets our priorities. And in that priority list, if you wish, the life that we have is more than food and drink, and our bodies are more than clothes. There's more to life than those things, because there's actually more to life than that. There is that which comes after death. So we are to seek to obey God and to have His rule change our priorities. So that we don't worry about things, we don't worry about necessities, God will take care of us. And yet, we, we do not believe. Intellectually, we might say, yes, that's true, but I think in our hearts, oftentimes, we do not. That's why there is a therefore at the beginning of this passage. We must choose the true treasure, if you wish, the true light and the true God. Then Jesus tells us, do not worry. There is a basic principle or a theme that runs through this entire passage, and actually it goes through from chapter 5 to the end of chapter 7. It's so obvious, I think that we may miss it. In fact, you may have missed it in reading. And what is it? It is this God is our Father. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, apart from God as our Father, we have nothing. We may, in fact, live in a delusion, if you wish, in the Matrix, that somehow we think things are wonderful. We think that we are rich when, in fact, we are poor. Once we acknowledge that and we turn to God, he becomes our Father Then what we find in the Sermon on the Mount is that God, in fact, will take care of us. By his grace, we become the children of God. It is only by his grace that this happens. And then we find out that we are called to be his children. And we're to be like him. If you look at the end of chapter 5, it ends with the words that we are to be like our Father in heaven. And in chapter 6, we are told what our Father is like. He's someone who sees what we do in secret, but he rewards us. You You don't have to put on a big show. God sees what you do. He is to be our audience. He sees all that we do. He knows what we need. He provides all that we need. Give us this day our daily bread. So why should we worry? Twice in our passage today, Jesus refers to the Heavenly Father. First of all, in verse 26, if you'll look at it, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. You'll notice he doesn't say their Heavenly Father, but your Heavenly Father, because he is our Father. When we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, we become the children of God. God is the Creator, he sustains all things. But the birds cannot call God Father. Only we can. And then in verse number 32, For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Again, it is not their heavenly Father. If in fact God was their Father, they would not run after these things. They would trust Him. But because they don't trust Him, because He is not their Father, they run after all these things but God is our Father. And He loves us. He cares for us. He knows what we need. Jesus does not tell us that we are not to earn our living. He doesn't tell us that we are exempt for caring for others. We are not to have an evil eye. We are to be generous. And He doesn't tell us, by the way, that we are exempt from experiencing trouble. What it does teach us is that our Heavenly Father knows what we need, and he will give us what we need. Therefore, we are not to worry. We are not to worry. Paul wrote to the Philippians some decades after Jesus, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. But don't worry. God, in fact, is your Father. He cares for you, and he knows what you need. Do not be anxious about anything. Easier said than done. It's only by the grace of God that I think we can trust him as we should. Let's pray together. Father, in truth, I think when it comes to worrying, for many of us it has little to do with necessities. And more to do with things we simply want. And so, what we looked at last week of storing up treasure on earth, I think perhaps speaks more to us. But in reality, we do worry. We don't trust you, we trust ourselves or schemes to somehow get us the things that we want. And it is as though our feet are in cement here on this planet. This is everything that we think about. We so easily forget that after we die, there is more to come. Because you do not always respond as we want. Like a giant vending machine. Sometimes we no longer trust you. Or the reality is oftentimes we know that we cannot come to you with requests because the requests are frankly invalid. They're all about us. When we look at your creation and we see the beautiful flowers that last such a short time and yet you care for them, may we be reminded of your care for us. when we look at the birds and see that they are fed may we remember your care for us may we put our priorities in the right order may we seek your kingdom that is for you to be the Lord of our lives and may we be people who trust you and who obey you on this day we are reminded of Your care for us, for those that are celebrating birthdays. How gracious you are to each one of us. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.